0: Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.
1: Thank you for inviting me back. Thank you for inviting me home. This church that meant so much to me 50 years ago, not only to me, but to hundreds of people, thousands of people in the Boston area who came here regularly from 1967 on to resist to rebel, to pray, to celebrate, to reaffirm their opposition to the war and the draft, and their affirmation of a better life here. It's great to be back. I have to say the church looks really good. <laughs> I was here 25 years ago and it needed a lot of work. <laughs> Paint was peeling off. I recognize some of the tears in the pew cushions that I remember from 25 years before that. But everything looks good now. so. Well done. I'm going to tell a story that George knows well, and some of you perhaps do, but I imagine many of you do not, uh, about what happened in October 1967, and then again a few months later, that May. Um, but I'd like to begin with a little bit of my own story, which then connected with this one as I came, as I said, home to this church. I grew up in the basement of the Unitarian Church of Buffalo, New York. My parents were, well, they fit the classical definition of Unitarians. They were agnostics with children. (laughs) (laughs) And so my sister and I went to the Sunday school in the basement for years. We loved it. It was a great Sunday school. We learned about other religions. It was always other religions, (laughs) actually. Uh, And had a tolerant, if somewhat amused, attitude toward all of them, but I became a very serious Unitarian. I was glad to be one. I felt part of it, and it stayed with me through high school, when I was active in the Channing Club of Buffalo, and then uh, even in college where I joined the college group for occasional meetings. When I came to Boston in the fall of 1966 to be a graduate student in English at Harvard, I started hanging out at 25 Beacon Street, then the headquarters of the UUA, where I met, among others, Bob Holler, who had been for many years the, well, had just begun to be, I think, a lay minister in this church. Um, he was then at the Layman's League office, the 25 Beacon. And I learned a bit about this church. And I got involved with activities there at the headquarters. I also met Homer Jack, a famous Unitarian minister then, who was in charge of social action for the denominational headquarters. Soon I met his son Alex Jack, who was a graduate student in Divinity at Boston University. So I felt sort of plugged into Unitarians again when I came that fall. By that time, as you know, the war in Vietnam was escalating rapidly. The news was full of terrible stories of villages destroyed and children napalmed and American soldiers and Marines getting killed and I was getting more and more angry, more and more sickened by it all, as was a large portion of my generation and many older, older people. And in particular, I began to feel guilty about having a student deferment from the draft. It was not guaranteed if you were a graduate student, but I had it. My local draft board seemed to think I should keep it. But I felt worse and worse about having it because I knew very well that there were lots and lots of men my age or younger who were being drafted who didn't have the option of going to college or had no other way of getting out of it, but who went either cheerfully or reluctantly to face a terrible war. So, I decided the least I should do is tell my local draft board that I was a conscientious objector, even though I was still a student in good standing. I wrote to my board and said so, and they wrote back almost immediately to say, no, we don't think so, you're not a conscientious objector, and moreover, we don't think you're entitled to a student deferment anymore either. So that began my struggle with my local draft board to prove that I was a conscientious objector, but alas, I was a Unitarian, (laughs) agnostic, that didn't help. Uh, The Unitarians are not on the list of peace churches. You should do something about that, right? I think you're trying here, it's good, but I was not a Quaker or a Mennonite. So my local draft board, rather puzzled about what Unitarian universalism could possibly mean, turned me down again. But by by that time it was the early summer of 1967. I felt worse and worse about the war and began to feel even a little guilty about being a conscientious objector, assuming I could succeed in becoming one. Not that there's anything dishonorable about doing 2 years in a hospital or whatever, I was happy to do that, but it just seemed like, well, if I get out of it that way, like the Quakers, then all I'm doing is allowing the government to get me out of their hair. So I began to think there might be something else I could do, whereupon a guy from Berkeley College, I mean, Berkeley, California, where else, um, showed up in Boston saying, well, we got a little group here on the West Coast uh, from Stanford and Berkeley and so on, the Bay Area, And we're calling ourselves the resistance and on October 16th, we're all going to turn in our draft cards. We're not going to burn them because if you burn your draft card, you're destroying the evidence that you're not carrying it. So we're going to turn them in to whoever wants to take them. We'll give them to our draft boards. We'll mail them to the FBI or the justice department. So they'll have them. And then if they want to indict us for not carrying draft cards, they can do that or we'll get drafted and then we'll refuse induction, stand trial and go to prison. The plan is to fill the prisons. I heard this talk. It seemed mad to me at first, this California swagger. We're going to fill the prisons, the federal prison system? This sounded like Martin Luther King and fill the jails, but those were county jails in a small city in the South. This was the federal prison system. We looked into it. It actually would be possible to fill the federal prison system with just a few thousand guys. So we found... Well, I finally thought, all right, I think I'll do this. And there were five or six others, including Alex, Jack, Homer's son, who was interested. We formed a little committee, decided to plan how we're going to turn in our draft cards and some sort of demonstration or ceremony on October 16th while other guys were doing it all around the country. Alex said, you know, I think it would be a really great idea if we could do this in a church. I should blow the shofar at that point. Um, I remember laughing. We all laughed. Sure, Alex, you're going to find a church that will allow us to commit multiple federal felonies in its sanctuary. (laughs) Yep, he said, I think I could find one. The next day, he said, I found one. Uh, So we met. our little group the next day, I think, with Jack Mendelson, And I remember asking him, saying, Jack, this is amazing that you're going to allow this in your church here at Arlington Street Church. And he said, listen, in in the 1850s, this congregation used to arm itself and break into the Boston City jails to release the fugitive slaves. We're not going to worry about a few draft cards. So he was as good as his word. He said he'd like to take part himself he would ring, the, have the bells rung as we marched in, playing We Shall Overcome, et cetera, et cetera. So we held a rally in the common, marched to the church about 5,000 strong. It was then the largest demonstration against the war that Boston had seen in October 67. The place was filled, not least with press. Ivan can talk about that. He was sitting next to Sander Van Oker of NBC News. Um, we had speaking the Reverend Dr. George Hunston Williams, Hollis Professor of Divinity at Harvard, who happened to be Alex's uncle. Alex is the real mastermind behind this whole thing. He pointed out that this was the 450th anniversary of the nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. And of course, you're very, we're very close now to the 500th. Do you have plans? Yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> if not, I'll come and nail something on your door. The, um, He said, this this would be perfect. This is in the spirit of Martin Luther defying the the established church. Also speaking was Bill Coffin, William Sloan Coffin, chaplain at Yale University, who was a Presbyterian and was a little chagrined, happy to be here, but a little chagrined that it should be the Unitarians that first did this amazing thing. And he said, ah, you Unitarians. He said, "You're, you're a little thin in theology, but you're thick in ethics. He spoke, I spoke on behalf of the draft resistors, several others spoke, and then when we gave the call, 200 guys came forward and handed in their draft cards to 100 ministers and priests who were standing up here in front. I don't know where they all stood, actually, but they were here. And um, we had one of these candlesticks, I think, that had belonged to William Ellery Channing, lit for those who wanted to burn their cards. We preferred they didn't, but we allowed them to. After all, we had to carry two draft cards, so some burned one and turned in the other. It was a very moving ceremony, I have to say. Sander Van Oker was in tears at the end of it, and he made sure that what happened here that day was the first item on national NBC news that night. The second item was an enormous demonstration in Oakland, California that, that shut down the army base and recruiting center for the whole day. It was an amazing time The church paid a price for it. Some well-to-do conservative members of the congregation left, took their money with them, went to first church or second church a few blocks away. Um, I believe the fire insurance policy was canceled because there were bomb threats. It It was hard for this church, but the congregation stayed true to it. I then carried the bag of draft cards and the ashes of the others to Washington at the end of the week where I joined Another few hundred guys from around the country and their older supporters, including Benjamin Spock, the baby doctor, and several others. Norman Mailer was there, I can't remember who all. Um, A group of them carried all the draft cards from around the country into the Justice Department building and left them with the Attorney General, saying, look, these are evidences of felonies committed by the draft resistor, but also we aided and abetted them by supporting them and receiving them, so indict us too. Well, things quieted down for a while. The FBI was all over the place calling us here in Boston. Perhaps calling you, George. I can't remember. (laughs) Yes. Um, But things were fairly quiet. I came home from Christmas vacation in early January and found my telephone was ringing as I walked in my apartment. And it was United Press International saying, Mr. Ferber, do you have any comments? And things had been quiet for a few months, so I was rather puzzled by this. And I said, Ab- about what? And the reporter said, oh, you haven't heard. You've been indicted for conspiracy with Dr. Spock. What do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> and I said something profound like, no shit. What? <laughs> was that all right I said that here? Um, he said, is that, is that your comment? And I said, no, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> uh, and I thought of something a little more appropriate that they could quote, and the phone did not stop ringing for an hour. We were indicted the most diplomatic and gentle way, and we were never arrested or anything, we just learned about it through the press. Um, Anyway, Dr. Spock, the baby doctor, William Sloan Coffin, the chaplain of Yale, two other older men who all had supported us, and I were indicted for conspiracy for what mainly went on here, and then what went on later in Washington as we turned in the draft cards of the Justice Department. We now know that Ramsey Clark, who was then Attorney General, and has since gone on to be a very radical left-wing lawyer, uh, wanted a test case. Uh, He thought it was too bad that young men were having to mount these trials and defend themselves without much money, but people like Spock could afford good lawyers, he thought, so let's have a test case about the war and about the draft. That seems to have been his idea, though we did not know that at the time. Well, I'm not going to talk about the whole trial, except to say that when the day of our uh, indictment, or I'm sorry, when the trial itself began at May, this church again did something remarkable. It opened its doors to two young men, one a draft resistor who was about to be arrested and the other an AWOL soldier who was not going to go back to Vietnam, uh, stayed here in this room and claimed sanctuary. This was the first symbolic sanctuary in the country. Today we hear a good deal about churches around the country offering sanctuary to refugees or undocumented immigrants, Uh, a very big movement now. But it was here that uh, the sanctuary idea, I think, first started, and it was for war resistors. So the Boston Globe, which practically endorsed us from the beginning (laughs) that day, had an amazing, well, I think we filled seven or eight pages of it. There was the trial itself and everything behind that, pictures of the defendants, and then what was going on here as the federal marshals finally came through, stepped over various people sitting in the aisles and carried out two men, only to be stopped again by people sitting in front of the police cars and the marshal wagons or whatever they were. Big to do, more news, more coverage, more trouble, more bomb threats, etc. But this church, bless its wonderful heart, saw this through. I remember too we came here in 1975 when the war was finally over to celebrate the end of it and to express some gratitude for its being over. So that's the story in brief. I've never told it in 10 minutes before. If you'd like a longer version, I'll hang around a little bit afterward. But I'd like to thank you for being part of this church. I know you have probably many other good calls on your money but I, would, I think it would be great if someday you put up a nice big bronze plaque outside this wonderful old building which said, it was here in the Arlington Street Church on October 16, 1967, that 200 young conscientious resistors turned in their draft cards to the government. And it was here a few months later that the first sanctuary was offered to a draft resistor and an anti-war soldier. If you put that up, You might get more bomb (laughs) threats, (laughs) but I think you could feel very proud of what was done in this church. Thank you for having me back.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Michael. The draft card turn-in is one of the proudest moments in the history of this congregation. And it was one of the most shameful moments in the history of our country. Far and away, those who served in Vietnam had been excluded from the American dream without the resources to get a deferment. And then when they returned, those who did return, these patriot warriors were confused with that dirty war, scorned rather than honored. That wound still festers. The Vietnam War is largely seen as a profound failure of leadership operating in a deadly web of laws. That national setting has never been as familiar as it is again now. With perfect timing, Historian and filmmaker Ken Burns has just introduced his new 10-part, 18-hour PBS project, The Vietnam War. On September 13th, at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., Ken Burns asked for veterans in the audience to stand and remain standing. A couple dozen white-haired but vigorous men, mostly in their 70s, stood to applause and cheers. It is too late for so many, but better now than never. And then Ken Burns asked for anti war demonstrators to stand. And after nervous laughter, more men, also white haired and vigorous, stood. Republican Senator and decorated Vietnam veteran John McCain joined in the applause for them. Ken Burns says that when Senator McCain was invited to the screening, he just wanted to see those parts of the documentary featuring the North Vietnamese story. Show me their story, he said. A new chapter of healing will be founded on mutual respect and curiosity and the understanding that there are many truths. Given the resources to resist the war, what would you have done? And more importantly, what is the modern equivalent of turning in draft cards? These are the closing lines of Reverend Dr. Jack Mendelson's sermon on the Sunday that followed. When an issue of this magnitude is joined, where there are those who, having exhausted without effect every lawful means of opposing the monstrous crimes being committed in their name by their government, who cannot accept silence or inaction and choose instead the Gethsemane of civil disobedience, how is the church to respond? That is the question posed to this church. You know, he says, how it was answered last Monday. But the continuing answer, the one that really counts, is yours. Beloved spiritual companions, in these days of awe, may we plumb the depths of our souls and seek truth and reconciliation and healing. Every day, we are offered the opportunity to summon great courage and do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. So help us, God. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website. ASCBoston.org